We're back and talking to author Tom Bleese about his book, Prescription for the Planet. Well, as, as we speak, uh, the Obama uh, team has barely got the seat warm, I think, in the Oval Office, uh, so it's kind of hard to make a preliminary read, but, but uh, how do you see things going under the new administration? Well, I was very happy. On my birthday this year, um, Obama appointed Stephen Chu to be Secretary of Energy, and I had been begging his energy policy advisors to name Stephen Chu. I don't, I can't say that I had anything to do with it, but I was very happy. Stephen uh, was uh, the director of Lawrence Berkeley Lab at uh, UC Berkeley here in California. Uh, I'd given him a copy of my manuscript about a year ago. We met briefly. Um, I know some of his colleagues who've discussed nuclear power with him on numerous occasions, and Stephen has himself talked about IFR technology in the past and how it can be used to solve our waste problems and help solve our energy problems. So he gets the big picture. There are a few details about what we can actually do today that he could stand to be um, brought up to speed on, but of course he can't be totally up to speed on everything. So um, I'm hoping to have uh, to set up meetings between uh, Stephen Chu and some of the top IFR people so that he can be brought up to speed shortly. Also, Obama appointed John Holdren to be the director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. So John is going to be one of Obama's go-to scientists. And John uh, actually helped me a little bit with my book. And uh, he also understands the big picture about IFR. So I am greatly encouraged that the Obama administration will be able to pursue uh, Jim Hansen's uh, recommendation of building a single fast reactor as quickly as possible so that if we find that uh, renewable energy sources can't provide all the energy we need, we'll be ready to go. Well, let's talk a bit about, about James Hansen. I, I think it was the first Bush administration. He was telling Congress that we're going to have problems with global warming and was being you know, roundly criticized for that how things have changed since then. As you mentioned in the interview, he advocated your book on national television. Do you need to talk with Dr. Hansen? Oh, I've talked with Dr. Hansen many times. That was about, um, it was just shortly after I'd sent him a copy of my manuscript, and uh, he called me up on the phone, and he was very excited. Uh, understanding probably more than anyone in the world how serious the threat of global warming is, he'd spent the last 20 years trying to figure out where we can get the energy that wouldn't produce greenhouse gases. And when he realized that the fast reactor had these amazing possibilities, he was uh, understandably excited about it and has since uh, advocated a position to, as I said, uh, build one, get it off the ground. Uh, we're, General Electric could start building one next week if, if they were asked to. Now, a lot of people... Uh are concerned about what we're going to do for transport. We can't, we can't, uh, you know, obviously drive around a, a nuclear car, but there's lots of options. Hydrogen, as mentioned, fuel cells, electricity. Well, we, when we talked about who killed the electric car, that was, that was the issue of the long tailpipe. If you're generating electricity with coal, you're not really coming out too far ahead. You spent a lot of time in this book talking about how we could do uh, transportation with, with these technologies using, you know, uh, interfacing with an IFR, but you have some novel solutions in the book or some other uh, technologies. Can you talk a little bit about, about some of those? Well, one of the things about hydrogen uh, is that it, it's not an energy source, it's an energy carrier. And essentially what we would like to do is we would like to drive around in nuclear-powered cars, uh, just 
converting the nuclear power to some type of energy carrier that could be put into a car. Hydrogen is going to be really expensive uh, because of the infrastructure that you have to build. But there is another solution that would be using elemental boron as an energy source. Now, boron is an, is an interesting um, type of metal that doesn't burn in air. So it can be stored anywhere in your closet, in your garage, in your backyard. But when it's in the presence of pure oxygen, it burns with about four times as much energy as its equivalent weight in hydrocarbon fuels. So the trick is to introduce a car that would burn boron in pure oxygen. And for that, you would use an oxygen extractor. As you drive, you would essentially pull oxygen out of the air, inject it into a combustion chamber with boron, and get a tremendous amount of heat, which would run a steam turbine in your car and, and uh, thus power electric motors. And it's 100% recyclable. The only uh, byproduct you get is boron oxide, which you can send back to a recycling center that's powered by an IFR. And you can drive off the oxygen and you have the same boron again. So you'll never run out of boron. And by the way, you can get the boron as a byproduct of desalination, which we're going to be doing anyway. And, and we should note this is exactly analogous to what many have proposed. Probably a lot of the science magazines have written up stories about uh, iron, converting iron, burning iron to iron oxide, and then recycling the rust back to iron in a, in a centralized plant and starting over again. Right. They've been doing uh, research on that at Oak Ridge National Laboratories, and they weren't doing research on boron, even though they could see that boron was such a, an efficient energy carrier compared to iron, because boron's not that cheap. And so you would have to keep extracting boron. It, just, it would cost about a couple hundred dollars for the equivalent of a tank of gas uh, if you were uh, extracting boron. The trick was to come up with the idea of burning boron in pure oxygen so it's 100% recyclable. So, yeah, when you go to buy a boron car, you'd pay a couple hundred dollars for that first tank. After that, you're just paying for the recycling, which is extremely cheap. And, and, I, and I think we should also talk about something that uh, you went on at great length in the book about, the possibility of using an IFR to generate energy and thus take care of a lot of our garbage problem by burning it in like these, these, uh, these basically uh, using plasma basically to burn them in at high temperatures. Right. Uh, the, the plasma technology is actually separate from the IFR technology. The, what it is is uh, basically a plasma torch, which is people call it lightning on a stick. Uh, it's something that's been used in industry for many years. If you have a block of steel, for instance, that's 12 inches thick and you want to cut it, you use a plasma torch. Now, if you run materials through plasmas, it breaks down their molecules into their constituent elements. So there was a director of a plasma lab, one of the nation's foremost plasma labs at Georgia Tech, uh, Lou Circio, his name was, who thought, well, I wonder what would happen if we ran all sorts of things through here, like garbage. And so he started running garbage of various kinds through it, and lo and behold, everything was broken down into its constituent elements, and he realized that this was a way that we could recycle virtually anything. And uh, he developed the technology, and since then, uh, they've built a couple of these plants in France that that uh, reprocess uh, municipal solid waste, what we call garbage, shredded cars, sewage sludge. Uh, they've been used to process uh, nerve gas, 
hazardous materials, everything breaks down into its constituent elements and you can reuse them. So what you get out of it is a, a, synth a synthesis gas made up of carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen, which are the three elements of hydrocarbons. And from that, you can make anything we make out of oil. Uh, and you also get a, a, a slag out of it, which from which all the metals can easily be recovered. And the rest of it you can use for building materials, road beds, bricks, tiles, that type of thing. So essentially, you take all of your waste products, and instead of separating them in your kitchen and having four different bins, uh, or however many, some people would have us have 20 different bins in our kitchen. You just throw everything all together. It doesn't matter. It's, it's effortless. It doesn't rely on human behavior to uh, recycle everything. This does remind me, incidentally, of my, my college uh, chemistry professor who was talking about how you can create things like that. He said, you can do anything you want if you've got the energy. Exactly. And the energy, uh, interestingly enough, to run these plasma torches can come from the garbage itself. The early plants that they're building, and there are some building in the United States right now, will just simply take the synthesis gas and burn it to create electricity. If you do that, you still get the slag, you get all the metals and the building materials and that sort of thing. If you burn all the synthesis gas and create electricity from it, 20% of the electricity from the garbage goes back to run the plasma torches. 80% goes into the grid. So it's a very efficient electricity uh, producer. However, if you've got all the electricity you need from nuclear plants, uh, then you can use the syngas to make plastics, tires, anything you want that we make out of oil now. The book is Prescription for the Planet. We're speaking with author Tom Bleese about how we might just be able to save the world here. <laughs> Since we spoke last over at, at, at Insight, I, I caught wind of the story. They were going to talk about building a plasma um, converter here in Sacramento, and I guess that's fallen through. If you follow that story, I guess we're not going to do that now. I've been more than following the story. I was uh, part of the uh, consulting group for the Mayor's Advisory Council in so the what beginning. Happened? Uh, what happened was the city council assigned three of their members to get the evidence from disinterested parties. People right, right who, away, you're in trouble, I just have to say. <laughs> that's okay. I don't live in Sacramento. <laughs> and, and so they, uh, they assembled a group of people who were very diligent about uh, producing the information about emissions and how the things work and what the other options were. And it became pretty clear that uh, the plasma converter was definitely the best option in terms of emissions and useful materials and everything else. I think the advisory council that was chaired by uh, uh, Ms. Hammond uh, did a wonderful job. Then uh, it got back into the full city council and the Sacramento Bee, for reasons unknown to me, uh, went on a more or less jihad against this thing. And... Uh, started writing articles that were implicating people who had been involved as being financially profiting from it and whatever. I went to some of the city council meetings. I was incredibly frustrated. I think the advisory council did their job extremely well. This would be a wonderful thing for Sacramento, and it's a no-lose proposition. The company that offered to build the plant for Sacramento said that they would do it at their own cost, and if it didn't work as advertised, they offered in writing to dismantle it and take it away at their own expense. So there was essentially zero risk, zero financial risk, zero environmental risk for the city of Sacramento, and it could reprocess all of our garbage 
uh, all of Sacramento's garbage, I should say. I don't live in Sacramento, as I said. But uh, right now we're carrying the Sacramento garbage over the Sierra Nevadas and dumping it in Nevada, which is environmentally a ridiculous thing. Uh, economically, it's ridiculous. And you would be able to get all of this electricity and all these building materials. And, and it's a no-lose proposition. So I've been extremely frustrated at watching this process. And frankly, um, I have a brother that lives up in Oregon. And he goes, well, I'll, we'll just ask the company to bring it up here and build it up here. So, uh, And I suspect that uh, U.S. Science and Technology, which is trying to build it here, will probably, and I, I wouldn't blame them a bit, if they just walked away from Sacramento. It's, it's crazy. And a couple years from now, mark my words, they'll be back, or another company like them will be back selling one to the city of Sacramento. Well, if it's any any consolation, Tom, this is not an isolated incident when it comes to the Sacramento City Council. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand. <laughs> well, Tom, since we spoke last at length, you've had a chance to speak with a lot of other nuclear authorities, people, uh, the French, uh, the Russians, and of course, uh, James Hansen. Can you talk about how those, all those how those chats are going? Oh, they're going very well. And as a matter of fact, we're forming a nonprofit uh, international uh, organization, a non-governmental organization that will include representatives from uh, the EU, Russia, uh, China, India, and the United States in order to um, produce a framework for building the uh, organization I propose in my book or something very like it, the Global Rescue Energy Alliance Trust, in order to produce uh, energy for everybody on the planet. As a sideline to this, uh, and a very happy sideline, the Russians seem very interested in the initiatives of the Plowshares Fund, which is a San Francisco organization whose purpose is uh, nuclear disarmament. At a recent meeting that included several uh, Russian scientists and American scientists, the, uh, there were two members of the Plowshares Fund represented there um, at the behest of uh, the man who pretty much has managed Russia's nuclear program since the days of Gorbachev. So it's very encouraging. The Plowshares Fund has been urging the Obama administration to reduce our nuclear arsenal from 9,000 warheads to about 1,000 warheads. And this certainly would seem to indicate that the Russians are probably willing to do the same thing. It makes a lot of sense when you think about it because it's very costly and it's a big security risk to be juggling 9,000 nuclear warheads. Uh -huh. And I think 1,000 is enough. No argument here. <laughs> so um, we have great interest from the Russians. Um, Evgeny Velikov, who is the person who is been managing Russia's uh, nuclear programs, read my book and uh, has been raving about it and talking to people who he's been working with in the United States about how we should create this organization. Um, I'd been told by some people that it was politically naive. Now I think it's probably less politically naive than some people think if they're taking it that seriously. And we're hoping to get uh, not only uh, Russian scientists, but uh, also some ex-political figures in hoping that uh, Evgeny will be able to uh, persuade Mikhail Gorbachev to be part of our group. I suspect that's in the cards. Well, the French are kind of the uh, the poster children, as it were, for, for the nuclear industry. They're getting most of their power from nukes using conventional reactors. Or are there, there's a sense you're getting from them that they might uh, want to change to this, this new type? Well, right now their new type is uh, what they call a Generation 3 Plus reactor. It's much safer. It can withstand a direct hit from a fully fueled jetliner, etc. 
but it's still a light water reactor. It still produces uh, spent fuel like our current light water reactors do. Ultimately, I believe that the entire nuclear industry around the world will switch to IFR-type reactors. And I, I've uh, spoken with uh, people who represent the nuclear programs from other countries, from India, from Korea, and everybody seems to be pretty much going in that direction. It, it's more a question of how long it will take to make the conversion than whether the conversion will be made. The problem is that all these different countries are doing it on their own. There, there are parallel research tracks that are being done in, in Japan, Korea, India, China, Russia. What's the point? It's, we've already got a tremendously safe design, and if we could share a single extremely safe design with the entire planet, it would not only speed things up considerably in terms of cleaning up our environment, but it would create the safest possible system. After the Argonne Laboratory developed this and, and actually built a, a functioning model, uh, they didn't just like throw away the plans, did they? I mean, these, the, the data's still out there, isn't it? Oh, the data's definitely out there. Um, what happened was in the later years of that program, uh, a consortium of American companies, including General Electric, Westinghouse, Raytheon, Bechtel, a lot of the biggies, uh, worked at Argonne National Laboratories to begin creating the commercial version of this plant. And the design that they came out with was called the PRISM reactor. Um, and now General Electric is uh, sitting on that design and ready to build it if uh, the political waters uh, change enough so that it would make sense to do it. Right now, they, ha they haven't built it up to this point because uh, it's a political battle. So why should they invest uh, over a billion dollars in the Nuclear Regulatory Commission certification process only if they expect to run into a brick wall when it comes to deploying the reactors? So... For now, uh, for a conservative big company like General Electric, it's much better for them uh, from a business standpoint to simply service the current fleet of light water reactors and start building some improved light water reactors uh, until the political winds change. Well, this raises an interesting question. Suppose Brazil or Japan or Indonesia or, or Russia were to come and say, we want one. We'll pay you, you know, $100 billion. We want one. Build one for us. Is that possible? Well, uh, I'm asking you a political question. Okay, when you, when you get into to technology sharing with nuclear technology, um, it requires clearances from the uh -huh. U.S. government. Uh -huh. However, uh, the Koreans who are headed in this direction are looking at their own plans for a fast reactor and a closed fuel cycle, as represented by the IFR. Uh, to be uh, to come to fruition about 2040 to 2050, and they're looking at the Prism reactor design and going, "Wow, we could save billions of dollars and decades if we could just build one of these things over in our country." So, actually, they've been agitating to do exactly that. Whether the Obama administration will uh, tell GE to go ahead and build one over in Korea, that's a that's a question that remains to be seen. I frankly wish that we would build one right here, preferably at one of our national laboratories. It's, uh, it's simple enough to do. It would take about a year, and uh, it would cost a ridiculously small amount of money considering the potential to completely convert the entire planet to this type of power production. Now, there was one point in the middle of all this that I don't think I would have thought of for a whole year, but we, we did interview... Dr. Freeman Dyson, a couple months ago, was noted for a guy that can think outside the box, noted physicist slash mathematician. And I asked him about fusion, something that's worthy of a talk, but not today. 
Uh, but he raised an issue that I that just really struck me. He said, well, he was, didn't think fusion was that great of an idea because he thought it would be so centralized, so engineering heavy, and so a lot of things that uh, he was favoring a more decentralized approach. And, and we should note that even if we did build a lot of IFRs, this wouldn't preclude people from being able to proceed in a local level with solar, wind, or other, other energy sources. No, it certainly wouldn't. But uh, there are also options for places like uh, many places in Africa or other places in the world where there people don't have extended grids, electrical grids or any electrical grids or for remote locations like, say, towns in Alaska. Uh, Toshiba came up with a nuclear power plant design that's based on the same principles as uh, the prism reactor and the IFR design. And that is uh, a sealed unit which will uh, produce energy for about 30 years, and uh, it requires no operator intervention. Basically, it would be sunk into the ground in a silo, and water would go in one side and steam would come out the other to run the turbines, and you'd have a turbine and regular electrical plant system up on the top. A similar design has been worked on by several different outfits, scalable from uh, 10 to 100 megawatts, whereas normal-sized nuclear plants about 1,000 megawatts. There's also been uh, work done on other so-called nuclear battery designs that would run from 100 to 300 megawatts. So essentially you would be able to take uh, a scaled version of a nuclear power plant and put it into a small town, a city of pretty much any size. You can scale it to whatever size you want. You still need to produce the fuel and after the 30 years, when you refuel them, you still have to reprocess the fuel at the end. So you still want to have IFRs to both produce and reprocess the fuel. But, um, but this type of reactor can, can work just fine. Matter of fact, Toshiba wants to give one to the city of Galena, Alaska, up on the Yukon River. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's just been dragging its feet. They're ready to put one in for free. We could be, in essence, uh, non-centralized, still very much integrated with this. Oh, certainly. And there's another. There's a new company called Hyperion, who uh, they've designed a reactor that's based on a space reactor. It's very small. You can go to HyperionPower.com or something. I forget exactly what the URL is, but H-Y-P-E-R-I-O-N. Uh, do a Google search, and you can come up with it and, and see what they're planning. There, there again, it's uh, not yet certified by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, so their uh, contention that they're going to just start building these things and cranking them out is, um, I would say, naive, perhaps, uh, or, or overly optimistic, let's say. But it's, it's doable. I'm sorry to say we're, we're just about out of time here, but uh, just one final adjunctive measure I want to just throw out for you, Tom, for your comment, was the fact that... Um, I talked to someone who was very big in the electric car a few years back, and, and he's sort of cooled off on his, his interest in that. But he said that what, what he thought the country needed was a better power grid to hook up areas, say, where they had a lot of wind power in the, in the, 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 the Rocky Mountain states to other parts of the country. And then if we had a better power grid, no matter how we were generating power in any part of the country, we would all, the whole country could profit from that much more than they can now. That's uh, what people refer to as the smart grid. And the reason that we want to develop this is because wind and solar power are so intermittent. 
Uh, we want to be able to, it, it's hard to juggle the power needs of the various power producers and the, the various places that the power is needed, even with relatively stable sources of supply like we have now with coal and nuclear power plants. Uh, much, much harder to do with uh, radically intermittent sources like wind and sun. So there's a push on, and uh, Jim Hansen is promoting this to to build what's called the smart grid. However, if we produced our power with uh, mainly with nuclear plants, it wouldn't be that big a deal because we'd have plenty of power and it would be baseload and it'd be pretty much the way we do it now. But uh, if we want to use these other sources of power, yeah, it's a great idea. And, uh, and it's in the works. I expect the Obama administration will probably be putting a lot of uh, funds into that. Well, we've run out the clock. Uh, we've been speaking with author Tom Bleese about his book, Prescription for the Planet. We'd have to refer you, I guess, for more information to your website, which is at? Prescriptionfortheplanet.com. And you will be speaking, I guess, at the Avid Reader uh, in Davis this week? On uh, February 7th at 7 o'clock, 7.30, something like that. I forget exactly. That's this coming Saturday. Right. And the book is available? The book is available at Amazon.com, as close as your computer. Okay. Well, Tom, thanks so much for speaking with us. I hope this will not be your only visit to the program. No, I'd like to come back. Thanks so much for inviting me. All righty. That's it for the program. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. On next week's program, we hope you will tune in. One of our heroes, Dr. Dina Dell. We'll see you then.